Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. All right, good morning. Nice to see you again. Hey, thanks for coming to the first service. Some of you got the message online. They're like, there's no more parking. There's no more seats in the second service. Glad you're here. Um, so, um, this is our passage today. Um, hey, can you turn up number one for me? There we go. Um, so, let there be light. There we go. Um, now, so here's what happened. I wrote a sermon for this passage, and then like Friday, I erased it and wrote another one. And then last night, I was reading over it, and I erased it and wrote another one. There's a lot going on here, more than meets the eye, and it's hard to know the, the best way to communicate this, because there's a lot of stuff that some of you who have been to seminary, some of you who have who've been to any kind of intense Bible school uh, that's where they study things in depth and they look at the scope of a book, um, there's a lot of stuff they tell those people that, they, that pastors don't tell their people. Um, just know that. There's a lot. Because they don't, think, they don't think you'll understand. I think they're wrong. I think you're smart. I respect your mind. Um, and I think everyone should have information um, about um, sort of the ins and outs of ancient writings. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually going to... Oh, whoa, back up. Not yet, not yet. That's... It's the reveal. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put this verse into sort of the grand scheme of what Matthew is doing. Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, we tend to think Matthew was just sitting down writing a chronological story of what happened. What Matthew did is Matthew took the writings of Mark um, and he, um, we've talked about this, how Matthew, how scholars believe Matthew was really formed. So Matthew is going to most of the time follow what's called the Mark Ann storyline. But then Matthew is going to veer away from that and make these huge, massive theological points in the ways that he organizes the, the teachings of Jesus. Now, um, this verse marks the end of something very important and the beginning of something else very important. It marks the end of the teachings of Jesus, um, the all-important Sermon on the Mount, and it marks the beginning of his ministry. Where he, from here, he goes into, this, into the city, and he starts healing people, um, casting out demons. He starts doing all kinds of like works for people, like, like bringing people wholeness. Um, and this is a turning point. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to use an illustration uh, of the picture you saw a minute ago. So um, in, the, in the mountains and the hills of Europe, um, places like Ireland and stuff, when, when hikers go out, it gets very, very foggy in a way that it doesn't here unless, except in like certain parts of the Smoky Mountains. Um, and hikers get lost a lot. Um, and so there, beca- there came this tradition a long time ago of people building what's called cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S, along the trail. Um, they're just piles of stone. 
um, someone will stop and they'll be like, whoa, I, I got off trail right there. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure nobody else gets off trail. Um, we don't want people getting lost. And so that hiker who maybe got off trail will go back and they will build a small mountain of stones. And the more people to get lost there, the bigger they make the cairn. So that um, to, as, as like a wake-up call, like, hey, stop here and look for the next one. Because this is a place where people get hurt um, and lost. And so here's sometimes they're very big. Sometimes, yeah, a lot of people got lost there. So, a lot, you know, you build them. And so maybe you could see them from way out in the fields or, or, or another peak of the mountain. And you're like, oh, there's one. We should go that direction when the trail's not marked very well. Um, other times, they're just very small because there's places where you don't have markings. And so they can't, it's a little artistic, too. Um, and so, like, going, you're going here and you're going to go to the next one. You're going to go to the next one. And so they put these things along the trail to sort of guide the steps of the hikers. Because there's a place that they're heading to, and they don't want to get lost. Now, um, I would argue that what Matthew does throughout the book of Matthew is that he puts these cairns on the trail. Um, a lot of people open the Bible, and they just start reading because they know they should. They know there's life-giving information in there. They know that there is a message in there that they have to grasp. But they don't necessarily know what they're looking for. They don't know, I just read it, I just learn the story, and they know what they're looking for. Not only that, we're separated from the original writings by 2,000 years, and there's a lot of things that we just miss that the earlier writers are doing because it's been translated from an ancient dead language into our language. And in translation, there's a lot of literary devices that are missed. There's about five or six different literary devices, they're called, in the book of Matthew. We talked about one at the very beginning of Matthew, um, the genealogy, the list of names, the genealogy of Jesus, and how it divided. The original reader would have read it and said, well, it's divided into sevens. Why is it divided into sevens? And why is David mentioned, basically, if you, if you add up all the sevens, which is the Hebrew um, sort of symbolic number for King David, what is this? Why is it 14? What is this? And, and there's these numbers. And basically what Matthew is doing is telling the readers, um, Jesus is the new king, King David. Jesus is the new king. But it doesn't end there. There's tons of other ones. And as we go through the book of Matthew, I'm going to start pointing them out to you. Um, and I'm going to start that today. So first off, here's an ancient piece of parchment um, written in Greek. Um, the, the, the average ancient piece of papyri written in Greek was a specific length always. There was like this uniform length, and it would hold about 17 modern verses. About 17. The book of Acts, if you actually add it up, um, the book of Acts is, is, is spaced out perfectly to fit in one. They're called codexes, like a stack of parchment. Um, and so sometimes the, the, the length of these books is determined um, by the medium in which they're writing. So Matthew, the entire book of Matthew is divided up into about 17 verse sections so that it can stack nicely, so that you turn the page and you have a new section. You turn the page, you have a new section. You're not continuing on to these other sections. Now, um, on top of that, not only is Matthew divided up into 17 verse sections, Matthew is also divided up into five discourses. Um, They call them discourses because there's like a, a specific thing that he's teaching in them. I hope I don't get too technical and absolutely bore you. When you see this, it's fascinating. And it changes how you read the book of Matthew. Now, um, the discourses are separated like this. You know you've come to the end of one when at the bottom of the page on the papyri, it would say, when Jesus had finished saying, or when Jesus had finished teaching, or when Jesus had finished these parables, when Jesus had finished these words, when Jesus had finished all these words, Matthew is ending a section and he's starting a new one. There's five of them. Do you know why there's five of them? Because there is... Five books of Moses in the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, penta means five. And he's basically saying, 
a new law. And the whole time he's doing this, Jesus is always quoting Moses and saying, you've heard Moses say this, but I say this. You've heard Moses say this, but I say this. Even at the very end of today's passage, let me back up. At the very end of today's passage, um, you read this on verse, chapter 8, verse 1. That's why I included this. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds follow him. So at the beginning of, Matthew, of, of the Sermon on the Mount, you have Jesus going up on the mountain like Moses. He receives the new law, teaches the new law, and then he travels down the mountain like Moses with all the people following him. This is all important. Matthew is setting up the reader, the Hebrew Jewish reader, to understand who Jesus was and the role that he played in their new lives. So let me go back here. So we have five discourses. Um, And this is, so chapter 5 to 7, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 18, and chapter 23 to 25. Now, I'm going to separate these up like this because there's something you need to see. So they kind of stack like this. Um, The very first discourse is called the Sermon on the Mount. It starts off, blessed are the, blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak, blessed are the, um, all those rejected, all those suffering. Blessed are they. They're not cursed. They're blessed. We know that the powerful and the rich are blessed. We've always said this. Jesus comes in and says, no, blessed are them as well. They're just as blessed as everyone else. Grace abounds. Then, at the very end, on the last one, there is this negative mirror of the Sermon on the Mount. So we go from blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak, to there's 10 blessings. And then in the last, cha- in the last discourse, there's 10 woes. Woe are you who oppress people. Woe are you, scribes and Pharisees, when you do this. Woe are you who do this. And woe are you. And so there's like, these are mirror images of each other. Okay? The first one, discourse, and the last one. Then... You get to the second discourse. It's instructions for the disciples. He sits them down and he says, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into the world and you're going to do this and this and this and this and this. Um, The fourth discourse is instructions for the church. The original reader is going to see this and they're going to see these things repeating. The very center one, at the very center, the middle discourse is stories about the kingdom of God. You know what? It, it, It tells these parables like, let's say you dug up a treasure in a field and it was the most amazing thing, but it wasn't yours because it belonged in the field. And you wanted it so badly that you buried it again and you sold everything and gave everything away that you had so that you could purchase that land to get that thing in that field. That's the kingdom of God. And he tells these stories over and over and over again. So the original reader, reading this in the, in the, in the Greek, is, gonna see, is going to see this Sermon on the Mount, instructions, kingdom, instructions, negative Sermon on the Mount. And they're going to say, oh, this is what's called a chiasm. Here, let me... The reason it's called a chiasm, I want to see if this works. I've never actually uh, done this here. Okay, so a chiasm is a chi, the Greek word, the Greek letter, X. Um, So kind of like this, right? So it's a picture of Christ. That's what they're doing. They're letting you know, like, this is, um, this is what's happening. Now, we're not done. It's more fascinating, okay? So... The first one and the last one are linked. The first one is about hope of the new way. The last one is about the inadequacy of the old way. Blessed are you, the poor, and cursed are those who are oppressing you. They were the old guard. You will be the new guard. You will be the new leaders of this movement. Um, and then the second and the third, the second and the fourth discourse are connected. Instructions for the disciples, why? Instructions for the church, why? Because the church are the new disciples. Everything that we read about the disciples that they are to do, we are to do. Most people tend to read the Bible and say, well, the whole Bible is written to me. It's, it's not a healthy way to read the Bible. You need to understand the Bible is written to these people. What can you glean from that? What context were they living in? However, when we get here, Matthew is telling you, no, you read this as if that's to you. 
okay? And at the very center of all of this is the kingdom of God. At the center of everything that we do is the kingdom of God. It's not anything else. It's not building big churches. It's not lofty speeches. It's not even personal inside convictions. It's not doctrinal structures. It's the kingdom of God. It's being a part of what God is doing in this world and establishing and being a part of establishing this kingdom that will reign forever, which means separating yourselves from every other person that is claiming to be Lord. And this is how the Christian life is lived. So when they come to the end of this, of the Sermon on the Mount, they're starting to see something that they haven't seen. And it, and it peaks right here in verse 24, the very beginning. Are you guys all with me still? Okay, I'm good. I don't know what that means. Okay. It says, therefore, this is today's verse. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Okay. Now, this was, this was a Sunday school story when I was a kid. It was, it was all just basically built on, built, built on solid things. And we're going to talk about like what that meant, what it means today. We kind of encourage people to, today to read the Bible and interpret it however they want. Um, and this had actually specific meaning in its day, and it was shocking. I want to remind you of the, of the last verse where it said, when they heard these words, they were shocked and amazed at what Jesus was saying. Now, um, so this is a very unexpected ending here, and there's three key ideas I want you to see. I'm going to underline them. There is built and house and rock. Built, house, rock. Notice those. Remember those. Now, Everyone who, who hears these words of mine and put them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Why is this important? Um, because we're talking about, okay, so if we hear the words of Jesus and we practice them, we are building something. What are we building? Very fundamental. I'm just getting there. What are we building? We're building a house. What is a house? It's a place where you dwell and live. Um, and we're going to build it on a rock. No, it's not a rock. It's the rock. That's important. There's a specific thing Jesus is talking about. Um, because a two days journey north from where Jesus is right now, when he's giving this speech, um, there was a temple being built by Herod. It was the temple of God's people. It wasn't finished yet. People t- assume, like, no, it was there and existed. It wasn't finished being built yet. Herod was still building additions onto this thing and building exactly what the Jewish people wanted because he's trying to find a way to live at peace with them and sort of appease them. So they don't riot, basically. So a three days journey away from where Jesus is giving this speech, the temple was being built. Built. What is the temple? If you read all through the Old Testament, it's the house of God. Um, it's the house of God where we dwell. I, I desire to spend um, a thousand days in the house of God. There's all this language about the house of God. So they are, they are building a house. And you know what they were... What they, were, what they claimed to be building it on? The rock. They used to call where the temple was being built, the rock. Um, they called it the rock because they believed it was a temple. It was, a, it was the center of this kingdom that would never be shaken. And it would never be torn down. And it would last forever. No matter what happened, it would be, it would be there. Um, Forty years after Jesus, it was torn down. 40 years later. Now, um, even today, if you go there today and you visit, this is what it looks like from uh, uh, drone footage. Um, that 
right there is a 1,300-year-old um, Islamic shrine called the Dome on the Rock. It's still called the Rock today. Okay, This is still like discerning listeners will we'll still hear what's going on here, what Jesus is saying. Okay, um, let's go back to our verse and read it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is, is basically condemning what's going on in Jerusalem. He's condemning the temple. He's saying, that's, you want to build on a rock? You want to, you want to build something that's going to last? Something that's going to actually going to stay? Why don't you start, when you hear the words of God, how about you do them? How about you practice them? Because that's not what was happening. What Jesus is doing here, he's, this whole Sermon on the Mount is like this huge speech of resistance against the powers that, that were at the time. That's what he's doing. He's fashioned it after their leaders. Um, he's, he's the new king, the new David. He's the new Moses, the one leading them down the mountain, giving them a new law. And now he's saying, and you know what? If you want a temple, you're going to build it on my words. You're not going to build it on in the city of David on this big rock. And throughout the scriptures, you can read this where he says, don't you know you are the temple? Don't you know you are the temple of God? So this is no longer about external things. It's not about any of this. That's not what any of this is. Um, And the people were shocked. I mean, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings. I like um, Eugene Peterson, uh, his translation of the message. He talks about, <laughs> I think he uses the phrase, um, their mouths were agape or something like that. Like jaws on the floor. Like I cannot believe he's saying this. Like he's, the things that he is claiming are huge. In verse 29, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. None of them ever claimed this kind of authority. And when he, and when he stands up and heads down the mountain... Everyone follows him. He is the new Moses. So what we have here is this stunning display of, of, of Jesus rising up and speaking out against the established spiritual leadership of their day. Now, let's go to the next verse. Because this is where he kind of really criticizes the whole thing. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. He's not even speaking metaphorically anymore. He's talking about when the Assyrians marched in and absolutely destroyed the city of David, burned down the temple, destroyed the whole thing, plundered its... uh, the, the Holy of Holies plundered everything and took God's people and sent them off into exile in Babylon and then took the Persians and put them in exile in Jerusalem and destroyed everything that they had. And what Jesus is saying is the reason this happens over and over and over, the reason you become absolutely ineffective in this world The reason you lose all your power, the reason you are incapable of making any kind of difference in the world and you are overshadowed overshadowed and put in bondage is because you refuse to actually do the things that God has commanded you to do. What did God command them to do? First off, the covenant was built upon this one specific idea that you are to be a nation for all nations, 
a blessing to every nation around you. God's people are supposed to exist as this, as this group of people through whom the rest of the world is blessed, whom we pour ourselves out for them. We are willing to, to suffer for their salvation. We are willing to, um, to do everything we can for their healing and to reconcile them with God, to reconcile people with people and people with God, to speak against evil in the world um, and oppression and to put ourselves in front of these people, to do everything that we can to be a blessing to the people around us. And that is how the world is supposed to view us. But what happens throughout the history of Israel is they forget their place in the world. They forget who they were called to be. They were chosen to be a nation to bless all people. And they forget that. And they think they're chosen to be a nation um, that excludes all people. And so they would build their city. And they would say, um, we're going to build a temple. Yeah, people can, from other places can worship here. But there's going to be these walls that are going to separate us. And uh, we're, we're the true people of God. So we're going to go in here and you can kind of hang out on the outskirts. I'm not going to allow you in. God is disgusted by that. And he says, you, you want to build on sand? You want, you want to know why this king keeps failing? Because you refuse to understand what I'm doing in the world. There's this theologian named Ernst Kesemann that I've been reading a lot lately. And um, he was a pastor and a theologian during the, uh, during the rise of Hitler, the Third Reich. And he pastored this, he, he was highly educated at um, what's called the Tübingen School um, of Theology. It's this, in, it's this school that was very prestigious that a lot of incredible theological work was done at. Um, and he studied there and he had these aspirations of, you know, of, 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 of climbing the ladder and, and, um, and coming back to these schools. He wanted to teach there, he wanted to teach at Oxford in the theology department, he wanted to teach it at um, the Cottingham School, all these huge theological schools. And then the Third Reich kind of rose up. At some point, um, he decides, and during his studies, he starts seeing some things that he disagrees with, with the system that he was in, being raised in, the things that he was being taught about God. And he started seeing that, like, we're not, we're not doing this right. We're getting off track. And he starts writing against his own professors. And eventually, he kind of gets banished from these schools, and he goes and starts this church in a small minor town. And where they mined coal or something, poor people. And he's pastoring this church there, just with these people. He's this wealth of knowledge, and he's filling these people up, and they're growing, and they're growing, and the church is growing. Um, and he gains a lot of respect through doing this work in the church with these poor people. And then the Third Reich, Hitler, comes to power. Um, and right from the very beginning, he knew something was wrong. And he saw it. And he knew where this was going. And he started speaking out against it. And people started pushing back. And he's speaking out, and they're pushing back. And he's speaking out, and they're pushing back. Um, November 13th, 1934, he calls a special service in his church, gathers everyone together. And he specifically makes a section for all of those who are followers and supporters of the Third Reich, of Hitler's um, regime. And he has them sit in a certain section, and he pulls out the constitution and bylaws and he, and, he, and he excommunicates them all from the church. He kicks them all out. There were members of his church who were part of the Gestapo. And they were threatening him while he's doing this. They're like, we're going to flog you. Like literally flog you. We're going to flog you. We're going to arrest you. And they're threatening him. And while they're threatening him, him, he preaches this sermon. And he kicks them all out of the church. He says, you have no part in the kingdom of God. You have no idea what this is about. 
This goes on for two more years. He keeps kicking people out of the church and his, his sermons get more and more bold. All the churches around him um, sort of, you know, create some space. Well, Aaron's case on what he's doing. I'm, you know, he's unique. Uh, and uh, even if they secretly agreed with what he was doing, they didn't have the willpower to do it themselves because they didn't grasp that if you're going to build this solid thing, if, if your faith is going to be real, you can't just have this mental understanding you actually have to have hands and feet that are doing these things. And he got it, and he was doing it. Um, fast forward two years, he stands up on Sunday morning, and he preaches this sermon um, from Isaiah twenty six thirteen. It goes like this, uh, the passage. It says, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. And he preaches this whole sermon about how other lords are ruling over us. It is idolatrous, and he speaks out specifically against Hitler and the Nazis and the idolatrous nature of all those who would follow him. At the end of the sermon, he walks out of his church and they arrest him on the steps of the church and they threw him in a Nazi prison. And he sat in this jail cell um, and you know what he did? He had a pen and paper and he got to work and he started writing commentaries. He wrote one on the book of Hebrews called The Wandering People of God. And he compares the people of God to the people wandering in the wilderness unable to put their actual faith in God and do the hard thing to move forward. Jesus has just been talking about um, how there's two paths. There's a, there's a narrow path and there's a wide path. The narrow one is a harder one, but it is the right one. And very few people are willing to walk it. People like Kesemon are willing to walk it. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer were willing to walk it. Um, he writes in his memoirs, I, I read them about three months ago, he writes in his memoirs that, that these people would come to his window, people of his congregation who supported him would come to his window every day and they would bring an accordion and they would gather around his window and they would play and they would sing him hymns. And they would pass food through the window and they would pass books, paper, pens. They would take his writings and they would edit them and get them published. And he kept up. While the war raged outside. Now, a little later down the road, when the war was over, um, all the seminaries and all the churches were purged of all of the leaders of the church who didn't stand up against Hitler. They were all purged of those people, and they were replaced with those who stood up against Hitler in the face of terrible suffering and pain. And Kesemann was one of those. And he became a world-renowned theologian. He just died in like the mid-90s. Um, there's two things you can build your life upon. There is solid rock and there is this sandy substance that is shaky. Um, and Jesus tells us what these things are. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. There is a reason that some people are willing to stand against incredible persecution and stand up and do the right thing in the face of incredible power and danger, great danger to themselves. They're willing to stand up and say, what you are doing is not the path of Jesus and I will not allow you to move forward without being impeded and I will stand here and I will do the right thing and force you to run me over so that everyone can see your injustice. There's, the people that are allowed, the people that actually have the ability to do this are the ones who didn't just study and understand. 
They are the ones who put hands and feet to it, who didn't just hear, but who did these things. A lot of your generation, the younger generation, is deconstructing their faith. And I think that's honestly healthy. It's a healthy thing to do. However, what you have to realize is this. God is not found in intellectual exercise. He's not. You're not going to find what you're looking for. You're, you're never going to find your solid faith just reading books and studying things. That's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. God is found. You know, you know where God's found? Um, when you meet the needs of someone who can't meet their needs on their own, and you give them exactly the thing that they need to move forward or to find health or to find wholeness again, and they look in your eyes and there's this thankfulness, that's where, that's where God is found. Jesus, Jesus says this. There will be people on Judgment Day who I will say, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was, I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was, I was naked and you didn't close me. I was in prison you gave me nothing. You didn't come visit me. I would argue... For those of you struggling with faith, um, I would argue that you've, you've likely, you've, you've just read a bunch of stuff and, and so now you've built your faith. Your whole life has been built on, built on these intellectual sort of ideas um, and now other intellectual ideas are tearing it down, of course. You know what you can't tear down? Um, you, can't, you can't intellectually deconstruct um, the love that you've shown to other people. You can't intellectually deconstruct those times that you were exactly what somebody needed you to be, those times where you poured yourself out for another human being, those times you can't intellectually deconstruct when you had something and you could have done something for yourself, but instead you gave it and did something for someone else. You can't intellectually deconstruct that. That is a solid foundation by which you could say, no, I, I followed Jesus, I did, I, I was gracious, I forgave, I didn't put myself first, um, I, I saw what Jesus did for me on the cross and I, and I mimicked that. I copied that in the lives of the people around me. And when you look in their eyes, all you see is unconditional love. That can't be intellectually deconstructed. I would argue um, that you probably should stop looking for God in books and ideas and because there came a point where Jesus had finished teaching and he walked down the mountain and everyone followed him. At some point, you've got to come down from your mountain and do something. At some point, you've got to come down from your mountain and sacrifice something for the people around you. You can't sit on top of your mountain all day um, like, like a monk in a monastery, just being silent and separate. Engage. Read what Jesus did. Sit at the table with some religious zealots, some political adversaries, and some prostitutes, and sit with them and listen to what they have to say. And be what you can for them. I heard this story from Gregory Boyd yesterday on a podcast where he was, it was like the mo- one of the most moving stories I've heard. Oh, I can do it. Okay. Um, there was this family who was adopting children and they only specifically adopted children who had been abused, um, abused in their homes. And so they, they, brought, they brought this little girl home um, and she was like 13 and... Um, they woke up after the first morning and they went in her room and there was, her feces was smeared on the wall. And they didn't get upset. They didn't yell, nothing. They had a specific method. It was centered on the cross, centered on being um, sort of the presence of Jesus to these people. And that means entering into their mess. So they sat there and they asked questions. 
And they said, well, after a few days of her doing this, they said, well, if you could do us a favor, we don't mind if you do this. Um, uh, if you could keep it to this part of the wall, and we'll even like maybe, you know, we'll, create a, we'll clean it off every day for you. She's 13. And every day she does this for a while. And it got to the point where um, she finally one day opened up after them being kind to her for a long time. And they, she opened up and she said, so when I was little, um, my, my father used to come into my room and sexually molest me. And one day, she said, um, this was going on and I, I defecated in my pants. And he was so disgusted with me that he ran out of the room. And she knew she had found a way to keep her father out of her room. So every night she would do this on the wall. And it, was, it became this comforting smell to her where she, she didn't feel safe and she didn't feel that she could sleep at night unless that was in the room. And so the family started joining her and, oh, we'll help you then. And they put on gloves and they would help her every night do this on the wall. Now, from the outside looking in, you walk in and you see, you see foster parents doing this. Your first thoughts are, you guys are crazy, you're abusing this child, we're getting her out of here. What they don't realize is, they're being Jesus, entering into her filth and mess and meeting this need that she had. And after a few months of this, she didn't need it anymore. She felt safe. And she, healing entered into her life. This is how this works. I, I was always taught growing up that building on the rock was, was this, it was having your doctrine right. Right? That's what I was taught. Let's hear from our friend Dallas Willard. The narrow gate is not, as so often assumed, doctrinal correctness. The narrow gate is obedience and the confidence in Jesus necessary to it. We can see that it is not doctrinal correctness because many people who cannot even understand the correct doctrines nevertheless place their full faith in him. Moreover, we find many people who seem to be very correct doctrinally but have hearts full of hatred and unforgiveness. Can I get an amen for that one? Like, this is what we see. Spiritual leaders of our land who know everything but love no one except for those who are just like them. And Jesus is clear. When the, when the winds blow and the storms rise, that is not going to stand. That is absolutely going to fall with a loud crash. There is, there is no stopping the crashing that is coming. And uh, I'm trying to figure out why I... Oh, yeah. And so we talk about communion. Um, what did Jesus leave us to remember him by? He left us a temple, right? No. He didn't leave us a temple. He didn't leave us a church. Believe it or not, when Jesus said, here's how I want you to remember me, he didn't even leave us a book. Jesus didn't leave you the Bible to say, here's how you're going to remember me. You know what he left you? The Bible came from the community of Christ who followed Jesus and wanted to remember the, uh, the words of the apostles. They wanted to seal them in stone to pass down to other generations. What Jesus said you're going to remember me by is this. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, this, take this and divide it among you. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
and he breaks it. You want to remember Jesus? Allow yourself to be broken and poured out regularly for the world around you. That is the role of the church. That is how this works. Our communion servers, you can take the elements. Um, And uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead and spread around the room. We need to spend some time pondering the fact that when when was the last time you came down the mountain and entered into the city and, and poured everything out for some people. If you can't name a time recently, it is likely that your faith is being built on, on shifting sand. That you could likely pretty easily be argued right out of what you think and believe. You want to build it on, on a rock, a thing that can't be shaken? Do the things that Jesus gave you to, be, to remember him by. Hear the words of Jesus. Hear them. And then do them. Find a way to love your enemies. Find a way to forgive. Find a way to reconcile. Find a way to be generous. Live your life on the path of Christ. Let's pray and let's take communion. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Help us to be people of strength. Help us to be people who are building... Uh, our faith upon something tangible, not just this monument to ourselves, not just some church building and a number of people gathering together. No, help us to build it on something important. Move us, change us, and continue to make us whole. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time and take communion.